Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and I am the host of the podcast titled Revolution Z. For regular listeners, I wonder if it sounds any better. I did upgrade the microphone. This is our 169th episode, and it's the third in the sequence titled Transition, which is a kind of exploratory series foreshadowing a written work, hopefully, on the topic of transition to a post-capitalist economy. Transition, if you will, to no bosses. The title this time is Where To, as in a brief discussion of transition to where. It is a draft chapter for your reaction, so let's begin. Where do we want to transition to? Let's call it a participatory society, or, if you prefer, participatory socialism. We want political, cultural, kinship, and economic relations to foster solidarity, diversity, equity, and self-management. We want it all sustainably. We want it all for everyone. We want it all before hell bubbles and boils everything into nothing. It's a tall order. We do not live, love, learn, play, or suffer by economics alone. But economics does vitally impact all social relations, and economic happens to be our main focus in this book. We know, however, that economics does not provide some kind of base or foundation from which all else rises. Economics is one key part of society. It emanates what we might call influences or forces that impact all other areas of social life. But altering economics is altering economics. Altering all society is much more than that. Altering economics and expecting all else to inexorably alter in accord ignores that it is far more likely that all else will seek to persist and, in doing so, will in time subvert even initially achieved economic changes. Worse, seeking to alter economics without comparably seeking to alter all else in light of all else's own logic and potentials would likely not even achieve significant economic change. It would likely fail to attract sufficient support for even limited economic success. The point is, not only economics, but various other facets of social life are vitally important. Not only economics, but various other facets of social life emanate influences or forces that impact all areas of social life. Economy affects culture community, kinship, and polity. But so too, culture community, kinship, and polity affect each other and also affect economics. Thus we have racialized economics, we have sexist economics, causal arrows run in every direction. To permanently alter a society, and even to amass the support to permanently alter any one dimension of a society, will typically depend on seeking fundamental changes in all critical defining sides of life in that society. This book, however, is mainly about transition to a particular type of future economy we call participatory economics. We must therefore indicate what participatory economics includes for us to transition to. Secondarily, the book is also about transition to a particular but less fully conceived type of new society. Call it participatory socialism or participatory society. We must therefore give some attention to attributes of and implications regarding other dimensions of life. So even if only briefly, here we address each in turn. 
First, political vision is primarily about legislation, adjudication, and implementation of collective tasks. To have political self-management, we will surely need venues for political participation. Let's call them assemblies. We will no doubt sometimes need recallable representation and other times need direct participation. So we will have to have direct assemblies and elected representative assemblies. We will likely also need diverse forms of assembly deliberation and a preference tallying to make decisions. We will likely also need new ways to deal with greatly diminished, but not totally absent, antisocial violations. We will need law, but even beyond law, we will need justice. We will presumably need means to implement collective policies, but we will want to ensure our means to implement collective policies don't elevate some citizens authoritatively above others and don't pit any citizens in zero-sum conflicts with others. For diversity, we will presumably need all the above to honor and respect differences while it facilitates and respects solidarity. To determine what structures can achieve these and more political ends is the stuff of conceiving a political vision for legislation, adjudication, and collective implementation. Regarding economic transition, to attain what we might call participatory polity will require us to interrelate visionary political choices and visionary economic choices so that each propels the other. Polity is profoundly important. And so, too, is conceiving new political structures and norms and addressing political transition. But polity is not our primary focus in this book. Next, cultural community vision primarily addresses relations among different racial, ethnic, geographic, national, or other cultural communities. Communities inevitably exist in relation to other communities. Each has its own ways, and the particular ways of each are often different than the particular ways of others. To attain self-management and also diversity, new cultural relations will likely need to delineate, but also to protect communities from incursion and violation. To achieve worthy cultural vision, communities will presumably need means to pursue their various particular ways of communicating, celebrating, and living with community members free to enter and leave. Cultural community vision will thus likely need to facilitate communities defining themselves free from external imposition and will need to guarantee communities means of communication and celebration. Perhaps the essential aspect of cultural community vision will be that when differences and disputes arise between the practices of one community and another community, means of resolution will need to protect the integrity of each, but especially to protect the integrity and the existence of the less populous or otherwise more vulnerable community. Regarding economic transition, to attain what we might call participatory culture, or perhaps intercommunalism, will imply we need to interrelate visionary cultural community and visionary economic choices so that each propels the other. Culture and community are certainly profoundly important, and so too is conceiving new cultural community structures and norms and addressing community transition. But community is not our primary focus in this book. We come to kinship vision, which addresses relations bearing on sexuality, procreation, nurturance, and socialization. What structures of life generate current, gender, sexual, and age hierarchies? 
What new structures can instead generate free choices regardless of gender, sexual preferences, and age? Surely freedom of living arrangements and of sexual practice should exist. Surely age alone should not blindly qualify or disqualify people from pursuits. New kinship relations in a new society will necessarily accomplish procreation, nurturance, and education of the next generation, household maintenance, and diverse choices for daily life and living units. We can sensibly predict that however all this is precisely and diversely accomplished, revolutionized kinship will seek to prepare children for the most multifaceted, creative, and caring lives they might themselves freely choose to pursue. It will treat men, women, trans, and people of different familiar and of new sexual preferences and practices alike. What changes might eliminate hierarchies among men and women and the toxic masculinity and subordinated femininity current hierarchies enforce and depend on? One change might be that participatory kinship would include neither woman as mother or men as father. Instead, people of all genders would parent. As another possibility, perhaps a feminist revolution will determine that activity involving personally attending to the needs of others has such profoundly positive implications for personality and empathy that everyone ought to do a share of it. Rather than taking care of the young, the ill, or the elderly being something women overwhelmingly do, such activity would in that case be considered so valuable and socially constructive of humane sentiments and empathetic capacities that it would be shared equally among men and women. Regarding economic transition, all this implies need to interrelate visionary kinship and visionary economic choices so that each propels the other. Kinship is certainly profoundly important, and so too is conceiving new gender, sexual, and age-related structures and norms and addressing kinship transition. But kinship is not our primary focus in this short volume. And so we arrive at our main topic, what of economic vision? Economics is about production, consumption, and allocation. How does a desirable society accomplish these? What are the implications of participatory economics for the lives of participatory socialism citizens? Production and capitalism occurs in workplaces with resources privately owned and their use determined by capitalists. Bezos owns Amazon. In turn, empowering tasks are overwhelmingly done by some employees, such as managers, accountants, engineers, and doctors, and disempowering tasks are overwhelmingly done by other employees, such as short-order cooks, cleaners, assemblers, and drivers. The corporate division of labor establishes an empowered class, who we call coordinators, above, and a disempowered class, who we call workers, below. Remuneration in capitalism determines how much each actor can claim from the social product. We get a claim to a share of the social product, that's our income. We use our income to buy stuff. The amount we get depends on the output of our property and on what we can take, and to a lesser extent on what we produce. Owners are ultra-rich. Empowered employees do fine. Disempowered employees suffer. In one sense, all three income streams depend on bargaining power. You get what you can take. Thuggishness dominates. In turn, with our incomes, we then consume, mostly as individuals. We go off to a mall or log on to a website and we buy things. When consumption is instead collective, parks, roads, schools, military police, the CDC, and so on, 
It occurs overwhelmingly without workers even knowing, much less having any say in its amount or composition. Allocation in capitalism is the name for how amounts of outputs get determined and distributed. It occurs largely by way of what we call markets, and wherein consumers and producers compete to benefit themselves as much as possible. Each participant tries to fleece the other. Competition rules. Commodities flow. Personalities conspire in the most antisocial sense. The horizon of human attention shrinks. The accounting of value ignores ecology, undercounts collectivity, and reflects power. However, in contemporary capitalism, allocation also sometimes occurs by directives. Planners decide what some outcome should be. They instruct others to behave accordingly. Others do so. In capitalism, such planning occurs mainly inside large corporations. It apportions labor, resources, and intermediate outputs to their destinations within the large corporations, though not between those corporations and the public. In post-capitalism, as we have so far known it, sometimes markets predominate, other times planning occurs, not only within firms, but between buyers and sellers as well. One could continue to enumerate countless additional features of contemporary economics and even describe the detailed attributes of such features. Indeed, libraries of studies do just that. But given this book's likely audience and its particular aims, we can instead move on to consider the core implications of attaining desirable relations in place of capitalism. A prior volume, No Bosses, A New Economy for a Better World, looks more deeply at participatory economic features. Other works do likewise. In this short chapter, an overview that we can expand as we proceed will suffice. In participatory economics, private ownership of productive assets disappears. In place of owners who govern work from above and accrue profits, we opt for a commons of natural and produced assets. Producers seek permission from all society to employ these assets in socially productive ways. Authoritative decision-making disappears. Top-down orders disappear. Instead, to the extent possible, each individual or collective act actor has a say in decisions proportionate to the extent to which those decisions affect him or her, or them for that matter. We call this collective self-management. In workplaces, workers accomplish this as individuals, teams, divisions, and ultimately in what we call a workplace council. In neighborhoods, consumers accomplish this as individuals, living units, and ultimately in nested neighborhood, city, county, and regional councils. Self-management, of course, respects and consults expertise, but it grants experts no special voting rights. Expertise informs deliberations, but experts express preferences like everyone else, as possible in proportion to the effects on them. A problem arises. How does economic life ensure that members of workers' and consumers' councils have personal means and inclination to collectively self-manage and to do it well? The corporate division of labor prevents that, so the corporate division of labor must disappear. Each worker has various responsibilities that compose his or her job, as is true in any economy. But contrary to capitalism and to coordinatorism, participatory economics balances jobs, so they neither overwhelmingly empower or overwhelmingly disempower the workers who do them. That is, participatory workplaces combine tasks into jobs so that each job comparably empowers in the same degree as do all other jobs. 
Thus, by his or her position in the economy, each worker enjoys comparable empowerment as all other workers. Their activities prepare and incline each worker to comparably participate in self-management. To attain equity of incomes, remuneration for property, power, and even for output disappear. Instead, we get income for duration, intensity, and onerousness of socially valued labor. This properly incentivizes economic activity, because so long as our effort contributes to socially valued output, equitable remuneration personally rewards that which we have personal control over. This approach ensures that the costs and benefits of each person's economic activity, plus the person's consumption rights, are in some identically regarded. Of course, if one cannot work, one gets an average claim on consumption, plus whatever free goods everyone receives. But now arises a question. What type allocation can provide information and influence and can elicit behavior that respects and facilitates self-management by workers and consumers' councils, honors classless, balanced job complexes, and facilitates equitable remuneration? Markets and central planning violate all that. Markets and central planning must therefore disappear. In their place, we opt for workers' and consumers' councils and federations of councils that decentrally plan economic activity. Producers and consumers propose behaviors, hear others' proposals for their behaviors, refine their own proposals, hear others' refinements, and refine again through a number of rounds, or what we call iterations, to finally arrive at plans for inputs and outputs for each unit and individual. The process, called participatory planning, accounts for all the involved personal, social, and ecological costs and benefits. It conveys self-managing influence. It informs and facilitates equitable remuneration. It promotes solidarity, diversity, and sustainability. The above is a summary of a summary of a summary of how a participatory economy accomplishes economic functions. It points towards three levels of more complete presentation. First, a full case for participatory economic vision would include a more complete presentation of the above noted defining features, the productive commons, self-managing councils, balanced job complexes, equitable remuneration, and participatory planning, and of their interconnections and mutual implications. Such a presentation appears in various places, including this book's predecessor, No Bosses, A New Economy for a Better World. Second, a complete picture of participatory economy would arrive at a full description not just of the scaffold that is the few defining features mentioned above, but of one or another full, actual, functioning participatory economy, with all its particular contingent and unique details. The second type of description has to wait for real people in real history to arrive at what they will implement in light of their unfolding preferences and experiences. Third, a transformed new economy will accompany transformed other dimensions of life, in particular, polity, culture, community, and kinship. So a full picture would include the implications of those transformations within the economy as well. The first type of elaboration, however, is the stuff of economic vision for now. It is what we can sensibly and justifiably envision now, and what we can then use for motivation and guidance now. What we can seek now a proposal for now conceivable vision can be found as noted above and in various longer works. To offer an equivalent presentation to that, here, 
would change the focus of this work and destroy any possibility of its being succinct. So I avoid that very real temptation. The summary of a summary of a summary offered above can suffice for this chapter, though hopefully readers of transition are already or will be moved to become more fully familiar with the participatory economic vision, though we note that we can and will augment parts of the above summary as we proceed here, whenever we may need to do so to speak sensibly of transition. And that said, this is Michael Albert, signing off until next time for Revolution Z.